Hello, it's July 14th, 2021. My name is Simone, and this is 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and are having a great start to your week. Please stay tuned until the end of the show for a word from a fellow true crime podcast. And with that, let's dive in to today's case. The year was 1997, and in the city of Fairbanks, Alaska, this city is known for its long summer days, meaning sunlight can last up to 21 hours a day. And also, Fairbanks is the largest city in the interior of the state of Alaska. And even though Fairbanks may be smaller in population, according to an article in 1997, Like many other Alaska natives, once many in the interior of Alaska received their monthly stipend just for being citizens in the state, many flocked to Fairbanks from surrounding villages to go shopping and have fun. And why wouldn't they? According to many accounts, Fairbanks is one of the safest cities in Alaska to live and hang around. But on the other hand, another article suggests that maybe not all of Fairbanks is as safe as one would think. And the people of Fairbanks and Alaska as a whole would realize that when in October 1997, an atrocious crime occurred and who were named as the alleged culprits would have many in Alaska at odds and questioning the justice system. In the following case, you'll find out what exactly happened on that October night who were named as the culprits and the intense aftermath in a case I title Unfair in Fairbanks. In the early morning hours of October 11th, 1997, a lively and boisterous wedding reception was being held for a newlywed couple named Audrey McCotter and Vernon Jones. Their family and friends came from Fairbanks and the nearby villages to celebrate their union as husband and wife. And after the ceremony, the newlyweds and their loved ones lived it up at the reception. According to reports, the wedding was held around the time Alaska residents received their permanent dividend fund, which according to the Pacific Standard paper, is an amount of money 
adjusted annually based on the state's oil revenues paid to each Alaska resident who has lived in the state for a full calendar year. And that year, the amount was $1,296. And once many who attended the wedding got their funds, it was no holds barred. And even better, there was now a marriage to celebrate. However, around the time the funds were issued, some reports say that crime spiked in the state, especially in Fairbanks. According to one report, in the early morning hours of October 11th, while the wedding reception was still going on, Fairbanks police was overwhelmed with many calls that came in to assist with disturbances. People called in to report armed assaults, street fights, robberies, domestic violence, drunken driving, etc. This was nothing that the police hadn't dealt with before, but that particular morning, the crimes seemed to never end. Meanwhile, back at the party, 19-year-old Marvin Roberts was having a grand time at the reception as well. He had not too long ago graduated high school and was even his high school's valedictorian. And he didn't drink any that night. Like the other guest, he just had a great time dancing the night away. Just a short distance away from the party hall where the reception was held, three friends were heading home from a nearby bar when they came across a sight that no one should see the friends discovered a brutally beaten teenage boy lying on the curb, bloodied and beaten so many times he was unrecognizable. They noticed that the boy was still breathing, though, as his breath was still coming out and showing up in the cold Alaska air. At 2.50 a.m., the Fairbanks police received yet another phone call from one of the friends telling them about who they had found. Police and emergency personnel arrived to the scene at 19th and Barnett and found the unidentified young boy now unconscious. He was laying near a lighter and some gum, and after he was taken to the hospital, Fairbanks police took the boy's photo and brought the photo to a local news station in hopes that his loved ones may come forward to identify him. The news staff broadcasted the young boy's bloodied and unconscious body on their report that night. And shortly after, the boy was identified as 15-year-old John Hartman. John Hartman was born in September 1982 in New Mexico, but moved with his family to Healy, Alaska, just three years later. According to reports, he was a well-liked child, and in 1989, he and his family moved to Fairbanks. He played sports during his early childhood and during high school. 
He had hoped to receive a football scholarship from his dream school, the University of Michigan, and then go on to be a veterinarian. Lastly, John had an easy time making friends, and he had a lot of them, which was why his family and friends were shocked and confused as to who and why someone would do this to him. At 4.30 a.m., while many in the police department were investigating what happened to John, yet another call came in from the local Alaska Motor Inn, where another party was held, and the police were called to break up the party. When they arrived, many of the partygoers fled on foot, including 17-year-old Eugene Vent, who was highly intoxicated. Before he could get far, police grabbed him by his collar and threw him into the back of their squad car. The motel clerk who called police told dispatchers that one of the teens attending the motel party waved a gun at him, and since the police had Eugene in the back of the car, they questioned the clerk to see if it was him who had the gun. The clerk looked in the back of the car and positively identified Eugene as the culprit. According to reports, after the police arrested Eugene, the call of his arrest was radioed in. And after hearing about the arrest, the chief detective working on the assault of John Hartman suspected Eugene may have had a part in his beating. Police brought Eugene into the station around 6 a.m., and his blood alcohol level had been a staggering 0.158%, or twice Alaska's legal limit. And possibly due to his severe intoxication, Eugene waived his right to speak to an attorney or his mother because he was underage. Before his interrogation, police knew they had nothing on Eugene to possibly blame him for John's beating. Besides him being positively identified by the motel clerk as being the one who waved a gun at him. So they decided to use the Reed interrogation method, which meant to tell the suspect, in this case Eugene, that the results of an investigation clearly indicate that they did commit the crime in question. For example, according to a report, during the first two hours of his interrogation, a detective told Eugene that one of his friends was injured and another witness was talking. The detective then questioned Eugene and said, quote, How'd your footprint get in the blood? End quote. Eugene, not realizing the officer had lied to him about his footprint, and after a few more attempts by officers to get a confession, Eugene told them he might have been at the scene of John's beating, to which he told them, quote, You're starting to make me think like I killed somebody, man. You're trying to fill my brain with things I didn't do. End quote. Hours later, and still holding Eugene into the interrogation room, police figured out what high school Eugene went to and used another tactic for him to confess to the beating of John. And that was using a local high school yearbook. A detective showed Eugene a photo of the high school's basketball team in which he played on and said those were his friends and that some of them were involved with John's beating and some of them named Eugene as being involved as well.
and he'd feel better if he confessed. And they continued to mention the bloody shoe print. Eugene still refused to confess and requested to go home, but police refused. And after around 11 hours of interrogation, Eugene, still inebriated, confessed to being at the scene of John's beating, and police took him to jail. Meanwhile, back at the hospital where John was being treated, a nurse also attended to 21-year-old George Fries. Earlier that evening, George had been partying and drank heavily, and later on had foot pain and checked himself into the ER. He told the doctor he drunkenly kicked someone the night before, but didn't remember much else. After the doctor left George, he was in the nurse's care, and after hearing about George kicking someone and knowing John was kicked as well, the nurse called police. When they arrived at the ER, they began questioning George about him possibly being involved in John's beating. And while they were at it, they took George's boot as evidence. To them, it could have been possibly used in the beating. George was eventually discharged and police took him down to the station for further questioning. But before they got to the station, a detective told Eugene, who he was acquainted to, was already cooperating with cops and drunkenly named him as a suspect and they used the read method on him as well to try and get a confession out of him. George, even though he was discharged from the ER, was still highly intoxicated and confessed to being at the scene of John's beating as well and was promptly taken to jail. Going back to Eugene's confession, police received information from his drunk confession when he named two other acquaintances, 19-year-old Marvin Roberts and 19-year-old Kevin Pease, as being at the scene as well. First, investigators located where Marvin lived and he had just gotten home from the wedding reception earlier. Police went to his home and told him his car tires matched skid marks left near the scene and played a recording of Eugene's statement implicating him in the crime. Marvin was confused because he didn't know this John Hartman, and he was not near the scene of the crime, and he repeatedly told police he was innocent and had no idea what they were talking about. But since they had Eugene's confession naming Marvin, they took his word and arrested Marvin for the beating. And as luck would have it, for the Fairbanks police, the fourth suspect Eugene named, Kevin Pease, was already in police custody. Several hours earlier, during the flurry of emergency calls on the 11th, Kevin Pease's mother frantically called 911 and told them Kevin was very drunk and hit her, and she begged police to take him away. Kevin already had a juvenile rap sheet, which included armed robbery, and after his mother called police, he fled to a friend's home, and the police caught up with him. The police questioned Kevin about John's beating, and like the other three suspects, he adamantly denied having any involvement. But still going by Eugene's statement, they kept Kevin in jail on the suspicion of his involvement in John's beating. 
Meanwhile, after police rounded up the four suspects, John Hartman's condition continued to deteriorate. And on October 12, 1997, 15-year-old John Hartman was taken off life support and died at 6.37 p.m. And now the four young men, Eugene Vent, George Freeze, Marvin Roberts, and Kevin Pease, were charged with his murder. And even without hard evidence against the four, the detectives on the case put together a scenario of what happened the night of the beating. The scenario was simply, Marvin, the only one with the car, drove he and the three others on a joyride to try and find someone to rob. Police concluded that the four came across John Hartman, beat him, and tried to rob him. And in doing so, they killed him. According to reports, police also ran into an alleged witness who allegedly knew the four, named Arlo Olson, who was 20 years old. And he said that he saw all four of the young men attack another person near where the wedding reception was held and drove away in a car that was linked to Marvin. Further, Arlo, who was reportedly high off cocaine and marijuana and heavily drunk as well, reportedly told police he couldn't see the faces of the suspects in John's beating because he was allegedly 550 feet away. But he identified them through their profiles and haircuts. And now the police had a confession from Arlo. After all, he was acquainted with the four. Wouldn't he know what he was talking about? A short time later, Kevin, Marvin, George, and Eugene were charged with murder and robbery regarding John's case and the robbery and assault of the man Arlo said they beat up on the 11th. While the four young men were held in jail following their arrest, and after Kevin, Eugene, and George had sobered up, they agreed to remain united and fight their arrest because they knew they were innocent. The police only went by hearsay. There was nothing to pin on them regarding either assault. At their arraignment, all four defendants pleaded not guilty. They were led into Fairbanks Superior Court where they were linked by chain restraints secured around their waist and connected to their handcuffed wrist. And they were held at Fairbanks Correctional Center on one million each bail facing sentences of between 20 and 99 years. After a grand jury indicted the young men, they were assigned defense attorneys, and their attorneys quickly tried to get their indictments thrown out. According to the University of Alaska at Fairbanks publication, Extreme Alaska, Kevin's attorney accused the district attorney of being one-sided when he presented information to the grand jury to obtain indictments. Kevin's attorney said that the DA gave an impression that Eugene and George had confessed, but that the DA failed to mention to the grand jury that Eugene and George were very drunk. Meanwhile, the prosecution presented to the jury George's confession, as well as the testimony of a detective who testified that an overlay of a photograph of George's boot with the photograph of John's face 
showed that the boot was a match for the injuries. But according to an article, the prosecution failed to disclose that shortly after the four defendants were arraigned, crime lab analysts were unable to conclude that George's boot inflicted the injuries and that the analyst did not prepare any reports of their findings. And the prosecution was called out for allegedly lying when they told the jury that the police had statements from fellow inmates saying they overheard the four defendants make incriminating statements about John's beating, in which the defendants denied. Furthermore, for the prosecution, a detective in John's case testified that tire marks near where John was found on the street were similar to the tires on Marvin's car. Despite both sides bringing evidence, it was decided that George and Eugene would have separate trials and Kevin and Marvin would have a joint one. And all the trials would be moved from Fairbanks to Anchorage, Alaska because the publicity of the case would possibly sway jurors. The trial against George started in 1999, and prosecution called Arlo to the stand. Arlo said that on the night of the beating, he witnessed the four defendants beating the other plaintiff and demanding they give him their money. And he added that he heard George complaining about a foot injury he had hurt in a fight. Prosecution also called the nurse who tended to John and George that night, and they said they saw a boot print, and they alerted police about George because of his foot injury. During the defense's time, the other assault victim, named Franklin Dayton, said he couldn't see his attacker's faces because he was holding his stomach during the robbery. The prosecution rested and told the jury to keep in mind that George confessed to police. But when the defense rested, they argued that this turbulent confession was the only evidence that the state had. Eventually, on February 16, 1999, George Fries was found guilty on all counts and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Eugene's trial was next and he faced eight charges that involved the October 11th assaults on John and two other people within a three-and-a-half-hour period, and the allegations of waving a gun at the motel clerk. Arlo testified again at this trial and said he, George, and the three others assaulted Franklin Dayton, but the defense brought in a psychologist who testified that it would be hard to identify a suspect from where Arlo was standing several feet away, whether it was night or day, especially since he was intoxicated. Eugene eventually took the stand himself and told the jury that he made a false confession and how he wanted to get the questioning over with. The jury in his trial deliberated for two days, and in July 1999, Eugene was found guilty on all of the counts against him, including second-degree murder and three months later, he was sentenced to 38 years in prison. Lastly, Kevin and Marvin's trial started on the same day Eugene was found guilty. At their trial, prosecution used Arlo again, 
and they argued with the defense that all their evidence was sufficient enough to find them guilty. And in August 1999, the jury agreed and found Kevin and Marvin guilty of second-degree murder and robbery of John Hartman and the assault on Franklin Dayton. Kevin was later sentenced to 64 years and Marvin to 33. The cases were closed, or so the state, prosecution, and police thought. In 2000, after all four were found guilty and sentenced to prison, a motion for a new trial was filed on behalf of the defendants after Arlo Olson recanted his statements he made to police and in all three trials. But when Arlo recanted his recantation, their motion for a new trial was denied. But even though their motion was denied, from the moment they were all arrested, they had supporters in their corner. Obviously, their families believed they were innocent, but so did many in their community and city. You see, Kevin, George, Marvin, and Eugene were all Native Alaskans, and in this close-knit community, many felt that because John Hartman was a white kid, police rounded up four Native Alaskans to find their culprit. And because many in Fairbanks, at least at that time, disapproved of this particular community. To put it bluntly, their convictions were all based off of racism. To many of the defendant's supporters, why hadn't the police questioned anyone else? Why did they focus on Native Alaskan suspects? Why were they in such a rush to solve John's murder, even if it meant to falsify and coerce confessions? But for some, this was nothing new. According to a report, racism was an everyday reality for most of the Native Alaskan community. And to many, the idea that a group of Native Alaskans might attack a white kid caught alone wasn't hard for some to believe because in their minds, this was what the Native community were, aggressive, abusive, and scary. Right after John Hartman was identified, local news media was written to by local Fairbanks residents outraged about what happened to him. And once the accused were named, many were outraged that the police didn't protect someone like John from the Native community and that once the four were convicted, they argued that they should get the death penalty. The now-named Fairbanks Four didn't seem to stand a chance against the justice system of Fairbanks in Alaska with these mindsets. Fast-forwarding to 2001, University of Alaska Fairbanks professor Brian O'Donohue and his students started doing independent research on the case because to them, the convictions of the four just didn't seem right. And in another turn of events, Arlo Olson recanted his original statement again in 2002, saying he was threatened with perjury if he didn't comply with what the detectives wanted him to say. Also regarding Arlo, later that year, according to the Tanana Chief's website, they said, quote, the UAF journalism students discovered jury misconduct in initial trials, which consisted of an unauthorized jury experiment testing whether or not Arlo Olson could have seen the Fairbanks Four from the distance that he claimed. End quote. 
This meant that when the jury tried to test whether or not the star witness Arlo could actually see hundreds of feet in the distance as to who was assaulting Franklin Dayton, the UAF students begged to differ that the method actually worked. There was just no way the jury could test to see how Arlo saw the assault on Franklin Dayton, especially with him being highly intoxicated that night. The UAF students also unearthed that nothing collected by cops matched the suspects. The blood on Kevin's shirt was his own, photos of skid marks didn't match Marvin's tires, and fingerprints and fibers collected from the car were inconclusive. Also, according to the Daily Beast, jurors later told University of Alaska Fairbanks students that Arlo was courageous and very convincing insinuating that Arlo was so believable that they didn't need another star witness, or anyone else really, because to them, Arlo was all they needed. While UAF students were investigating, Kevin Pease was granted a new trial in 2004. But in 2007, the Alaska Court of Appeals reinstated his conviction. And for a few more years, the four men convicted of the murder of John Hartman and assaulting Franklin Dayton, sat in prison fighting for their freedom. But their freedom was a long shot. After all, lots in Fairbanks believed they did it, including the state of Alaska, and nothing was going to help them. But in 2011, a jailhouse confession would be sent in from someone never named in the case. That year, an inmate, also in prison serving two life sentences for a double murder, named William Holmes, told a prison guard that it was him and his friends, including one named Jason Wallace, who were actually the culprits of John Hartman's murder. The confession from William was directly faxed from the prison guard supervisor to the Fairbanks Police Department. At first, the Fairbanks police were skeptical especially since they were adamant they had the right men in prison. But two years later, in 2013, the Alaska Innocence Project filed affidavits claiming a different group of high schoolers had killed John, including William and Jason. In William's confession, he said he was a junior at a local high school when he, Jason, friend Marquez Pennington, and his best friend Shelmar Johnson cruised around seeking drunk natives to beat up and rob. But instead, according to the Daily Beast, the crew jumped a quote-unquote white boy. William also added, quote, Mentally, I have lived as if that night never happened. I am sure the boy who was chased down and stomped that night was John Hartman, end quote. William said he was the getaway driver and said Jason Wallace his buddy and future cocaine-dealing partner, who was serving 70 years for another murder, was the one who stomped John Hartman to death. With this new information, on September 25, 2013, the Alaska Innocence Project filed for post-conviction relief based on Williams' confession and new evidence that corroborated the Fairbanks Four's innocence. In response, the Alaska Department of Law requested State Troopers Alaska Bureau of Investigation to conduct an independent review of the case. By December 2013, during the independent investigation, 
Witnesses who knew William and Jason at the time came forward and corroborated William's confession, saying William told them what they had done to John. And they saw all the men William had named in William's car that fateful October 1997 night. By 2015, the case was still being reviewed, and in a spark of good news for the Fairbanks Four, Marvin Roberts was released on early parole in June of that year. And although Marvin was released, that was not good enough for the Fairbanks Four's loved ones, because Marvin and the other three were still named as John Hartman's killers. In August 2015, William Holmes' confession was leaked to a local Fairbanks newspaper, but the article was quickly taken down. But not before a blog about the case took screenshots and republished the confession. Due to this, an emergency hearing on the case was called for the next day. After the emergency hearing, in October 2015, all four of the original defendants returned to court for a post-conviction relief hearing that lasted for the next six weeks. During this time, on October 23rd, Jason Wallace, who was named by William Holmes as being a co-conspirator, was granted immunity from John Hartman's case because prosecution and the state were unsure if he would take the stand. On October 30th, Jason denied any involvement and said that he didn't even know about the murder until years later. He even denied knowing anyone in the car that night besides William. By December 2015, supporters of the Fairbanks Four held a rally outside of the local courthouse demanding then-Governor Bill Walker pardon the Four. And finally, after almost two decades of being in prison for a crime that they and many others said they didn't commit, the Fairbanks Four signed a deal with the state allowing Kevin, George, and Eugene to also be immediately released and erasing their convictions for the 1997 murder of John Hartman and assault on Franklin Dayton. But after they were all officially released, under a condition, they agreed to not sue the state or Fairbanks for compensation. But the men did eventually sue the city of Fairbanks for wrongful imprisonment because their release agreement was not legally binding because they said they were coerced. However, their lawsuit was denied locally and federally. After their release, William Holmes and Jason Wallace have not been convicted for John Hartman's murder because of their deals with the court and the fact they are already serving lengthy sentences for other murders. The other two William Holmes named in his confession have also never reportedly been brought to justice for the murder of John Hartman nor has the assault of Franklin Dayton ever allegedly been solved. Charges were also dropped against Eugene for allegedly waving a gun at the motel clerk back in 1997. In June 2017, Arlo Olson, the state star witness, committed suicide while serving time in prison for an unrelated event. The story of John Hartman's murder and the exoneration of the Fairbanks Four comes from the sources of Pacific Standard, The Daily Beast, Vice News, 
and others I'll put in the notes. All right, uh, that was one of the lengthier ones, but there was so there was so much to this case that I wanted to say and read to you all about. Um, but the, I would like to start uh, for my opinion. I would like to start and say, thankfully, the Fairbanks four were all exonerated, but they never should have been convicted. Um, if you guys have followed along with this uh, case, this episode, you uh, would probably probably agree if you don't that's fine too but I think most of us would agree that they should have never been convicted why because number one police did not have a thorough investigation like I know like watching all these crime shows the first 48 hours or the first 48 um the those two first two days after a person is killed it is very or or assaulted um, it's very crucial to find a suspect as quickly as possible to obviously get closure for the loved ones and put the right ones in prison. But in this case, the police did not do that. They found it. They found it. They found, sorry guys, they found um, anyone as quick as, quick as possible that could be like looked at as a suspect, that'd be believable as a suspect. And number one, one of those things that one of the people that, were involved in the investigation and the police looked at for clues is that nurse who uh, reported George's um, uh, injury. Because like I mentioned, uh, you, uh, George went into the ER because he was really drunk and had a foot injury from the night before. Uh, he said he kicked somebody. Then the nurse was like, well, I'm attending John Hartman, um, well, tending to John Hartman. And they were like, well, maybe this guy George has something to do with it like that was such like a snitch move like I understand if you have your concerns but that doesn't mean that George had anything to do with uh kicking or killing uh John Hartman I think they just went off you know the context clues George was drunk George had a foot injury George told the doctor that he kicked someone the night before and oh let me mention this to the police now, I understand, like I said, that context clues may have put George at the scene to that nurse, but it turns out it was somebody else he may have kicked. I don't know who he kicked, but it was not John. And um, all the police used were the drunk confessions. Number one of Eugene, who named his friends, which he eventually apologized. He did apologize for, like saying I was drunk. They showed me a yearbook. You guys were all in the yearbook photo, and I just picked you all out of the picture because the police used that tactic of you know coercing him using that yearbook and um the police used drunk, drunk confessions and we all know if some if we all get drunk or somebody gets drunk we all may come up with some like i don't know bullshit or something and especially they were trying to go home they, the police held them there for hours trying to get a confession out of these young men knowing that they may or may not have had the right suspects in custody they just wanted to close the case and they use George's boot. Like how many boots are worn by millions of people around this country, around this globe? And they used the boot um, of George who came in drunk to the ER. Like, let's take your boots and let's match it to John Hartman's murder. And like, there's so many boots that are used in this country or worn in this country. And it turns out that the boot print on John didn't even match George's boot. Like that was a whammy that, that, that didn't work. And, the they were scaring them telling them that their friends were cooperating like I had never really heard of the read um interrogation process I knew that a lot of 
people in law enforcement do try to use any way they can to get a confession, but I didn't know an exact title for this um, method, and it's the Reed Investigation Method. And um, they were scaring these young men, saying, oh, your friend said that you were involved. Your friend said they are injured by you. Your friend did this and that. And they confessed because, number one, they may have been drunk, like George, Eugene, and Kevin were. And um, they confessed to something they did not do because they wanted the questioning to stop. And I don't know much about criminal justice, but they took drunk George from the ER, but they didn't wait for him to sober up. Like, I don't know if that's a thing. I really don't know. Maybe you all can help me out. But is it kind of weird that maybe they should have let him sober up a little bit before they took him to uh, be interrogated? Um, Maybe they were, you know, they wanted that confession so bad. They waited for him, you know, they wanted him to just be drunk and just say whatever. So he would just tell them. And, um, Marvin was sober. Marvin was like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know who John Hartman is. I didn't really party with the other three that night. I don't know what was going on. And they still took him in by a drunk confession by Eugene. Like really? And They showed him the yearbook and he picked him out of the yearbook, like I said, and named Marvin. And that's all the police went on. Like, come on now. Come on. I know. Just come on. And the police scenario saying, oh, they went for a joyride. Marvin was driving and the other three ran up on John Hartman and tried to rob him. And instead they killed him and beat him to death. Like, that doesn't really make much sense to me. Like, obviously, William Holmes and Jason Wallace did something like that. But they didn't they didn't know that for the first few years because they were too, like, busy saying that they knew who was already in custody, who already killed John Hartman. And they did not know um, because the other two were out there living sort of freely until they were convicted of other murders, which is crazy in itself. And Arlo's testimony I know he was a star witness and recanted what he said because he was drunk and high the night the police uh, questioned him and he kept recanting and all that. He couldn't see the faces, though. He said he couldn't see the faces of the people, but he recognized them by their haircuts. Come on now. Like, sorry. I mean, I know Arlo is deceased now, but that was kind of messed up, in my opinion. And the police just went off that. I want to go ahead and reiterate. I'm not against, you know, law enforcement for, you know, the most part or anything like that, but just trying to coerce people who were inebriated or taking people in who they were not 100% sure did the crime is kind of messed up to me, like I think many of you will agree with. Um, And almost everyone lied just to solve this case. The police, the prosecution, the state, they knew they were not 100% sure about who um, was involved in John Hartman's case. They just went by just context clues and questioning random people. But in the end, they knew that they were not 100% sure. And here they are, 2011, William Holmes tells his prison guard what he what he and Jason uh, Wallace did. And they fax he faxes it in confesses and all this and that. And here they are the real killers of John Hartman. Granted, unfortunately, they will not be brought to trial because they're already serving life sentences for other murders, like I said, which is really insane but luckily they know who killed john hartman and maybe one day the other two william holmes named will be brought to justice but according to reports that may not be likely and i'm not sure why but um at least there are two that are already in prison for killing john at least from william holmes 
um, confession. And that's it. Uh, no more rambling right now. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you were intrigued. Please let me know what you think about this episode on 90s Crime Time social media, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Also, if you'd like to monetarily support the show, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash 90s Crime Time and support there. And I still have some 90s Crime Time merch with the new logo on them. If you're interested and you can choose from a sticker, magnet, or shot glass, um, if you're interested in one or more of these, uh, you can DM me on the 90s Crime Time Instagram page. And before I go, I'd like to leave you with a word from a fellow true crime podcast by the name of The Murder Diaries. On this show, hosted by two friends that met on the Bumble app named Natalie and Paige, on their show, they talk about true crime stories but they focus on cases that give voices back to the victims. And with that, stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you soon for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Here's a word from Natalie and Paige from The Murder Diaries. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of The Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know... Like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. On our podcast feed, you'll find things like our Mean Girls Murders series. And we just interviewed the sister of a missing person. We can't wait to have you join our hive. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the Murder Diaries Pod or our website, themurderdiariespodcast.com. Until then, better safe than dead. Bye. Bye.